so I think Aristotle wrote about art and policy, uh, or art, art and politics rather, art and politics. Um, and um, the, and then, I mean, you know, um, so on one of my blog sites, I've got a picture of um, Napoleon, um, which uh, is this beautiful painting um, I've actually been fortunate enough to see by Ongres, so um, 19th century artist. And, it, and it's kind of got Napoleon on his, I think it's called Napoleon on his imperial throne. So this is from, um, you know, like I guess 1808 or something like that. Um, and in some respects, like this was a, this was a use of art in policy because it was portraying Napoleon, who of course was in some respects like, you know, usurper. He didn't, he wasn't from a royal family. But he would here he was on an imperial throne so that was providing this political use to napoleon which was essentially establishing his legitimacy um so that was 1800s um and um and then i think the other thing that's the other sort of and, and this isn't really an artist it's something slightly different but is the the role of like um the jester or the fool in the medieval courts and i think sometimes like an, an artist does act as the kind of jester or fool um but you know every medieval court had a well i don't know about everyone but like lots of medieval courts had a had a jester or a fool and i know that they're, they're slightly different um uh the um but you know so so through that that period um i i heard um that um uh, and i can't remember the, the person's name but brunel university in london um, I believe has a an official fall in re in residence now, um, which is a, a, an interesting interesting role. Um, so I, you know there are these 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 sort of historical um, uh, examples, um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be sort of pushing things forward. Um, there's a there's a really lovely example from the UK from the 1970s called the Artist Placement Group. Um, which I really recommend looking up, um, and and they kind of like found their way into government, and and there's like these beautiful pictures of people in the 70s, like these artists in in Whitehall and in these sort of um, meeting rooms and like where policy decisions were made. And of course, there's no computers or laptops, and they've all got enormous beards, um, and they're wearing flares. Um, and and they kind of really like tied themselves in knots as well, which is quite funny. At, at one point, so they were called the Artist Placement Group, which you know, okay, I understand that. But at one point, they decided that they couldn't be called artists because that was like prejudicing what they were trying to do. So they changed their their names to the Incidental Persons. <laughs> and so you have this like artists in Whitehall in a bureaucracy and like weirdly they became more bureaucratic than like the bureaucracy um so yeah there's some lovely examples and i think it is really interesting to look back at them um but perhaps more exciting to look forward so my name is stephen bennett and i'm a visual artist uh, i'm also the co-head of the uk's policy lab um i've been working in art and science and policy over the last 15 years so my real interest is the intersection of those three areas, art, science, and policy. This is episode 44 of the Near Future Laboratory podcast with my sidekick, Chester, and me, Julian Bleeker. Good evening, Chester. Good evening. 
A month or so ago, I was scrolling through the Near Future Laboratory Discord server when I happened upon a post by Coralie, and Coralie had posted a link to some kind of law firm, or maybe it was a lobbyist firm called SRG Bennett, and I sort of wondered what the heck. But it wasn't until later that I went back to that post by Coralie, and I realized that SRG Bennett wasn't a law firm, nor was it a lobbyist, it's a normal human being, a human called Stephen Bennett. And Stephen Bennett is the guest on this episode of the podcast. Now, you might wonder why I would have a guy named Stephen Bennett as a guest. Like, what was it in that post of Corley's? What I saw when I finally clicked and went to the site were some fascinating write-ups on the ways that speculative design and related creative practices were being used to shape, inform, and expand the perspectives of policymakers. And it turns out that this Stephen Bennett character, well, he works at something called the Policy Lab in the UK. I went down a pretty deep rabbit hole that led me into some pretty curious and productive areas that really helped me develop further an appreciation of the ways in which design fiction fits and how it operates to inform and shape strategy. Hey, so are you interested in the Near Future Laboratory community? Well, one way you can get in there is to support the podcast over at patreon.com slash nearfuturelaboratory. Something ain't for nothing and it's only $8 a month, which is ridiculously little for everything like this podcast, the newsletter, early access to general seminar, and then all the amazing futures conversations and projects that are going on right now in the Discord. So go over to Patreon, show us how much you value all the things we're doing, and uh, become a patron. Also, why have your attention? We've got the book, The Manual of Design Fiction, getting ready to drop in a couple of months, and when that happens, we'll be getting back to work. So if you or your team or your org are looking to gain some perspectives on what the future may hold, and you're not afraid of a unique, different, and creative approach to peering into the near future, send us some notes. Set up a time for a 20-minute chat. All the links are in the show notes. Okay, enough of that. Let's get on with the podcast. This is my guest, Stephen Bennett. Yeah, so I'm really curious to uh, hear more about your work at the Policy Lab. I'm kind of fascinated by this study of the relationship between artistic practice and uh, policy. Maybe we can start there. It, it's interesting. I think there's a, the policymakers do a lot of things really, really well. Um, so, um, things like the use of economic an- analysis, uh, things like, um, bringing stakeholders together, um, things like, um, sort of mediating between the law and sort of the public and politicians. Um, but I think you, you can always ask yourself this question, like we should be looking to do things better and, and, um, we should never, um, be, um, uh, complacent in terms of thinking that we've got it, we've got it nailed. And I think if you look at the state of the world, uh, you know, what, why on earth should we think that we've got it, got it nailed? Um, so um, this is sort of something I want to say, which is that, uh, and I've never really said this before, but I guess at, at heart, I'm a collage artist. I spent a lot of time doing collage uh, in my early career. And there's something about taking someone from one context and putting them in a different context, which I think is really interesting. And that's what the lab is in many ways. So we're a team, we're part of the civil service in the UK. That, that's a, a phrase that means something, you know, we're uh, on your side, I think. We're, we're sort of the official part of the bureaucracy. Um, and, and it's a team which includes, so I'm an artist. Um, we have a curator in the team as well. Um, we have some policymakers who have a lot of experience of working in policy. Uh, we have a lot of social scientists and ethnographers. We've had um, physical scientists and biological scientists at previous points, and we have a lot of designers. 
Um, we have a creative technologist that we've just brought in as well. And um, it's, I, I guess, you know, it's just an incredibly creative and productive space. Um, and then we'll, we'll work on policy challenges uh, and bring a kind of mixed set of methods into that policy space. The thing that's really interesting is like mediating between the policy need and then the sort of new approaches and the different approaches. Um, because we, and the most important thing is that you, you choose the techniques and the methods which are appropriate for the policy and, and for the need. Um, but often there's a sort of bit of a demand sort of building case, like people don't know what they need or what can be useful. And then the other thing that's really exciting, I don't know if you've seen these posts, is that we've really been trying to um, like really plunge deep and bring out some unexpected things from our bag of tricks. So, you know, things like using design in policymaking has been happening now for about eight or nine years in the UK and I suspect in the US as well, in, in some areas or some, some parts of the, of the US. So what does that mean in a practical sense? So when you say using design, what does that look like or feel like or how is it being used? Well, I mean, there's there's a number of posts in the UK which is called Policy Designer, which I think is really interesting. And that, you know, they those literally, they would not have existed probably five years ago. Um, and um, the I guess the the kind of, the, the probably the most easy bits of that will be using user-centered design approaches to um, understand the impacts of the policies and how they'll play out. Um, I think there's probably a piece about visualization. And then probably the more interesting pieces for me are actually potentially using things like speculative design or design fiction um, to almost like ask what should we be doing in the first place, create kind of different scenarios of what a world might look like, um, trying to engage the public, policymakers, ministers, in terms of like which of these worlds might we want to go into. Um, and and yeah, so I think there's there's a sort of variety of different elements. Um, uh, potentially, I guess, using sort of design skills to literally design the policy as well, like how, how the policy might work effectively. Um, but it but it's sort of happening in the UK at the moment, um, and that. Uh, but but there's there's sort of, I guess the, the, there's a need for a team like Policy Lab to always be looking at things which are new and different. So we've just re, um, produced some innovation cards, which we're which are like these twelve cards, which are kind of A five sides, and you can play at different points. And those include um, methods like super forecasting. Um, serious games, um, citizens' assemblies, art and policy, legislative theatre. So we've kind of almost got a bit of a spectrum between the things that policymakers do and are really good at and know, like the back of their hand, things like design and ethnography, which um, have been trialled and tested in government well over the last seven or eight years, but you know, by no means um, mainstreams, but people are still using uh, those in some pockets. And then the real kind of cutting edge stuff, which people don't even necessarily, you know, never thought about using in policymaking. And I think we're interested in that whole spectrum. Um, and then sort of that almost gives you, you know, a set of different techniques or methods you can use in a given scenario. Yeah. 
there's something about what you're describing like that I'm, I'm, I'm super exciting i intuitively get it i just you know I, and I'm, I'm wondering how is it so i do and i'm wondering how is it sold through to use a, a kind of extractive term how is it sold through to uh whoever decides that something like policy lab is going to be funded in other words, how is it justified as as an expenditure in in some kind of crude sense like is there a sense of like okay well let's just see what what happens here or are there is there a real sense of like this is actually making the work of of you know governing so much better than it ever was i can't believe we didn't do this like 20 years ago like what what is the the sense from uh yeah i don't know who would be in the in the UK, like the mps to be like yeah this is great this is helping us figure things out in a way that we never yeah i i think there's a real desire to um engage citizens better um now we live in a democracy right so and i think this is a really interesting tension citizens elect a government through a democratic process um and that is you know the cornerstone of a de- uh, of a democracy um and in, in the uk at least i think probably the same in the us you'll have a manifesto which is like a this is what the government or, or the party would do if it gets elected and that's critical because that's almost like the contract with the electorate um and the electorate will be expecting that that is what's delivered but that that um, manifesto is quite high level and government is detailed and there's that you know it's technical and and quite far encompassing and also you know a legislative term might be like five years so by the end of that period things might have come up like a, a pandemic which no one knew um was going to happen when they wrote that manifesto so i think there's a real desire um and um commitment to engaging citizens and the people affected by policies better throughout so i think a lot a lot of people are really interested in that i think there's a recognition that some of the things that that we some of the approaches that are used to to do that at the moment are pretty dry so it's really important that government consults when it's going to do a policy but actually Sometimes that might look like a hundred page document with a hundred set questions, which citizens just don't necessarily have the time to do. And I think that's where my interest in things like visualization and things like art come in, because I think these things can provide such interesting ways to engage people. So I think, did you see the one of the blogs I wrote was on my trip to Meowulf? Yeah, I would totally want to get into this, into the Meow Wolf thing. So I, it's, you went to the one in Santa Fe, I went to the one in Vegas. I mean, it was... I went to both, actually. Okay, so it was, to just give you a sense of how desperate I was to go, it was like essentially the only trip that I took during the pandemic. I was just, I was one of those people who was just like, I don't, I don't need to go anywhere. I'm fine in my studio. I was like, oh man, I, I, who knows, they might pull this before the pandemic. <laughs> So we so we went just you know one night and get a nice juicy steak and just do the Vegas thing and go to Meow Wolf. That was it. Yeah. So, how, so it, tell me about that. Like, what was you know what was why did it make sense? Because my first guess was like, oh man, he was just trying to figure out how to use the last bits of his of his grant. <laughs> what should I do? I'll go to Vegas. That's what I'll do. 
the so it came from a discussion in 2018 and i can't remember who it was with it was a a female um east coast academic i've looked through all, all my emails to try and find this i need to i need to try harder and i was talking to them about um kind of participation in decision making so we we're talking about things like citizens assemblies participatory democracy participatory budgets um sortition things like that and, and, you know, also things like just workshops and, and workshops with the public. And I described um, what uh, a technique that I've used in my practice and that we use in Policy Lab called a evidence discovery. And the, the basic, basis here is, and I used to work in um, the Government Office for Science, which produced um, these amazing reports that were some of the best evidence created by some of the best scientists in the UK, you know, globally. Um, but, you know, the reports were thick and um, it's just hard for people to get into. It's hard for the public to get into. People are busy. People don't have the, the time. And it's hard for policymakers to get into as well. I mean, um, uh, the policymaker life is, is you know, you're just hit bombarded from so many different directions, whether that's politicians or with stakeholders, NGOs. Um, so this great evidence existed, but wasn't necessarily being used or engaged with. Um, so I was talking about this data discovery, whereby what we would do is we'd take all of the guts of a scientific report and we'd put them around a space. Um, and it's a bit kind of, you know, our, our, it was quite lo-fi. Um, we'd print these things off on cards, you know, use some nice graphics, but they were on like these A5 cards and sort of put them around a space and then ask people to form groups. And this could this would work equally well with members of the public or with like representatives of a department or with representatives of a, a lobbying group or whatever. You'd get people to come together and you'd ask them to almost like go on a discovery around these pieces of evidence. And you'd ask them to tell us what the problem was what the challenge was so you sort of flipped around the engagement model here rather than having this tome which you know if you get to the end you'll 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 know everything and you'll know exactly what you've got to do written by these sort of you know people who know better or sort of these experts you've you've completely flipped that around and you're letting the individuals the the sort of people who actually have the power to act or vote or to do things differently, you're getting them to have the agency of creating that story and telling you what all these pieces of evidence mean. There's an important role for curation here. So those pieces of evidence that are around that space, they're not just anything, they're carefully curated. So, you, you know, it's, it's not just like you're not using the evidence or giving up on it, but you're just using it in a slightly different way. And um, I talked to her about this and she was like, oh, like Meow Wolf. You're like, what? <laughs> yeah, so I guess there's a sort of reaction, isn't there? When anyone hears about Meow Wolf, they're like, come again? <laughs> Say that again, sorry, spell it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so she spelled it and I looked it up and that was like 2018 and it's taken me four years to get there. Oh. And um, it's interesting that you went to the, the Las Vegas one because um, that was, I think, done in 21 or 20, 2020, 21 probably. Um, and the Santa Fe one, I guess, was done in like 2015 or something. Crazy, crazy. Um, and it is it's quite paper based. So they've got this like mailbox, they've got this newspaper, there's all these papers left over the drawing room table. They've got like a bookcase and you can tell they've thought about every single book in that bookcase. They've got a safe, a will, family portraits. And I guess it's got a bit of a vibe of like a scavenger hunt to it. 
or or a kind of escape room thing that you're you're sort of you know you know that there's this this um quiz this clue like you know that you need to figure out you need to solve it um and um i think what that means is that people probably are engaging it in a slightly different way um probably spending longer in the space and kind of just going into it in a more meaningful level and um people are just being given the trust to to sort of come up with like what the answer is what the like especially the santa fe one actually i think that was quite open-ended um and i just think that's there's such parallels there but between what Meow Wolf are doing and what I think we should be doing in terms of how we engage people with evidence that's relevant for policymaking. Um, and also it looks beautiful. Hmm. Like Meow Wolf was just a beautiful space. And it's almost like, well, why don't we make all these things beautiful? Why don't we make like the presentation engagement with evidence beautiful? Um, and like, I know that um, people like David McCandless and, you know, there's a, there's a site, Data Viz World, where they kind of do that. Um, which which is kind of cool. Um, although I'm always interested in maybe like having a bit more grit in it. Hmm. So not just like making things like really like sort of um, almost like clinically beautiful, but maybe having maybe making it sort of a bit dirty, a bit kind of messy or even um, I used to have really interesting discussions with a former chief scientist. He would always be like, can we present the data as clearly as possible? Because we need people to read it. So they like read it in a second and they know it and they've got it because these are busy people right and i was like i would like to make stuff like beautiful and like hard to read hard to see and people would have to spend like 15 minutes understanding it hmm. it was sort of like this really interesting discussion um and and my sense is that if people work harder for something then it just lands like more hmm. uh, and if it's beautiful pe people will remember it um if they had to figure it out and they sort of like it was them who figured it out it's going to sit with them more. So, um, so this is why I don't know if you've seen the Glasshouse exhibition that I did. I was I sort of did a data visualization, but on pieces of broken glass, <laughs> which was kind of stupid. It was like a stupid data visualization because obviously it's much easier to read it if you just did it like neatly on some acetate or some perspex and just made it nice. But I kind of wanted I wanted it to be hard to read. I wanted it to be on broken glass, which has this visceral um nature to it this materiality to it so that there's like this you're just you're just sort of getting people uh and getting people to to, to engage in this more meaningful deeper more emotional way yeah do you think in the so i'm curious what the what the par parallels were that you could just kind of alluded to in the meow wolf um where, where, what parallels did you see to the kind of work that you do like what did you learn from it or what maybe maybe you learn nothing except like okay this feels like what i'm trying to attain what what was it there that 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 you discovered so the, the sort of the two terms i used in in my blog were um deconstructed storytelling and narrative agency and so the, on the first point, you know, there's a story there. And, and um, I was really fortunate to speak to some of the, the sort of staff um, uh, who told me about the history of the place. And I think Vince, um, who's one of the founders, is like really interested in storytelling. They wrote loads of this story. Mm. Um, 
and um, it's a detailed story. It's got many components to it, but it's almost impossible for anyone to know what that complete story. It's physically um, spread out around this space. And that really resonated with how I think about engaging people in evidence in terms of um, like sort of allowing people to piece it together to find their own way. And this is the narrative, giving people the narrative agency, like allowing people to to work out what the story is, what the what it means uh, and not be force fed that, not be lectured it. Um, so in some respects, yeah, it did confirm, um, the kind of things that I had thought about. Um, it was really interesting to sit there and like, I spent like 30 minutes with the diary, which, you know, and like, b- because I was sitting there for so long, like I saw people come and go and stuff. And I was quite interested to see how long people did engage, you know, cause I thought I might, I, I'll be a geek. I'll spend 30 minutes here, but other people will be like way through. Yeah. But it was really interesting seeing like younger people, like kids were going nuts. Like, oh, I found this bit. We've found the thing. Like now we're looking for this. Now we're looking for this. But also like adults as well were doing that. Um, I experienced it completely. I didn't even know that there was a behind the butcher's counter world. I thought it was just in the Vegas when I thought it was a Mega Mart. And when we went back there, it was just like, whoa, okay, this crazy world. And you feel this energy of trying to piece things together and people – Oh, this this workstation over here is showing something you know like let's look at this and it was incredible like how deeply people invested it wasn't just a museum where you're observing things and kind of like then you get tired and you're going to go away people's yeah. imagination was so fired up well, I mean, so why why wouldn't you why wouldn't you use this in policy making i guess i guess there's a question except that i and and I, of course i totally agree with you the i guess the i'm just trying to i'm looking for the the counterpoint, which is like, well, this just seems like kind of kind of silly. It doesn't seem like real stuff. It seems like just play. Like people are just fucking about. Like that's not. No, no, no. We need to. Where's the where's the where's the you know the the oak um, table where we debate and and uh, argue over the finer points of subparagraph twelve? How come no? Where's the PowerPoint? Why does why is there no PowerPoint in this in this policy thing? Yeah. Although I did, I, there was a couple of really great nods in um, in the Vegas, uh, they, one of the job titles was like the VP of Futurability or something like that, which I loved. I just thought there was a couple of really like knowing nods to like corporate um, yeah. corporate bureaucracy. Um, yeah, I think that it. I I, I guess it's it's fun to look at an extreme, isn't it? And a meow wolf is like an entertainment space at its core. You pay dollars to go there. It's a business. Um, so there are things that you could like this comes back to this collage point there's things that you can take from that and appropriate and bring into a into a policy space and um and there'll, there'll be need you know you would need to do things really differently and and um you know um p- policies can have profound effect on people and um a lot of the ethnography work that policy lab does is incredibly moving um so you i think you'd have to you'd have to judge it right um, this point about curation, I think, is really important, like just kind of curating a space that would be appropriate and right. Um, but, yeah, that energy, I think, is really powerful. Um, the other thing you and you were sort of asking me, like, was, you know, did it confirm everything I knew or, or did it sort of, you know, um, 
did I learn things? And I think that the big thing that I learned there was just the almost like the quality of the aesthetic and the production. Um, and actually, I mean, I think that I think that the um, Santa Fe one was um, done on a bit of a shoestring back in the day. I think they sort of, you know, they had quite a lot of fun and it was all quite sort of, you know, they 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 made things and and fucked around basically a bit, but it looks beautiful. Um, but I, I guess the Vegas one, you know, I can't imagine what the budget was for that. And I think that for me is a really interesting challenge. Um, you know, the policy, the the neat policies are delivered in quite a quick speed. You know, we might be working on workshops which might happen in September, like this September. How do you bring that quality, that aesthetic, um, into these sort of shorter term? processes i think is really tricky um i haven't quite figured that one out yet um but it, it feels like a, a really interesting challenge yeah there's um that the point that you made that really resonates is the not imposing things in in a sense like finding the way in which there's whatever like co-creation collective sense making um that that if you can facilitate that, it feels like there's a level of engagement where you're not just being told how things are going to be. And I can't remember where I'm in the midst of um, reading a reading a, a colleague's manuscript for their their imminent book, just like a blurb kind of thing. And I've just been reading through it, and um, amazing cases that are being described where there you can almost see the room where policy is being made, where the school board is is up on a dais in the, in the gym of the high school above the crowd who are sitting in folding chairs being essentially you know, sitting there and it just seems so perfunctory the way it's being described. It's like, yeah, we'll listen to what you're saying. Cool. Like that idea. Interesting. Yeah. We're going to work on that. Of course we're here to serve you. And there's no, there's no real integration. There's no, it doesn't have the feel of, of just sitting around like an, a round flat table where there's no, necessarily experts and there's no one who has there's no single point of power or influence it's it's really collective in a way and it seems like that's almost like a structural barrier maybe that's one of the things that that i find you know just kind of personally like my intuition which might be misguided just finds frustrating it's that there's the the centers of power or the, the where the power comes from is feels so far away it feels not something where there's there's a there's participation beyond the kind of perfunctory gesture of democratic decision making. Mm. I am um, straight after I was at um, uh, Meow Wolf, I went to the New Mexico State Legislature, um, which is in Santa Fe, um, because I'm a <laughs> politics and policy geek. Um, I actually really liked it. Mm. Um, and and they had an art exhibition in there, which I think was done by sort of fairly local artists. Um, they, had, they had a load of art in the in that building. I was quite impressed. I thought it was just a really nice thing to do to have like quite a local art exhibition in the in the state legislature. It just kind of gave everyone a reason to go into there. Um, perhaps perhaps on a sort of more more sort of um, impressive uh, and and bigger level. Um, when I was in New York, uh, I met a uh, five different artists who are part of their new, the New York Public Artists and Residence Scheme. So this is really interesting. Um, and it's run by the New York's Department for um, Culture, Cultural Affairs. 
and um they've, they've got a website and and uh and they've um over i think over about like maybe eight or nine years they've brought in each year about three or four artists to work in different um new york departments so um my geography you know is not too good here but i think that probably that's a, a constituency of like eight or nine million people maybe 12 million people that are in the city of new york with the five boroughs um so that's a you know that's a big government that's 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 not like an artist in residency in a in a sort of art gallery or or like a, a museum or something this is like um you know they have 20 different departments etc cetera, etc cetera. um and um so i think there's there's some really interesting um pieces out there where um artists are um being used or sorry being used is such a horrible way of describing it are um are kind of actually opening up government um and and making it a bit more accessible in in a variety of different ways um using different tactics um and the the other thing that i'm really excited at the moment by is legislative theater um so um this is uh, my understanding i haven't haven't sort of done a project on it i've just sort of learned about it and it's one of our innovation cards that we're we're, we're um keen to push um so my understanding is it comes from the sort of theater of the oppressed um world augustus bow um so it's a you know whereas i think um that movement was was focused more broadly about social change legislative theater is specifically focused on on legislation right so so this is really interesting because it really gets into the the kind of technical elements of a policy and um from what i've heard um and i'll just try and dig out the name of a fantastic person who, who's talked to me about this oh uh, sorry i can see her name actually it's katie rubin um she's based in Man uh, manchester in the uk at the moment but she's american and i think has done a lot of work in in new york as well um uh, so that's katie rubin um and um it, essentially what you'd have is you'd have um a group of people affected by a policy you'd have the the kind of like facilitators and what they would do is they would play out as actors these um these scenarios where a policy is used and, and is deployed uh, and katie described it to me like a charrette so mm. so like a, a kind of prototype like a that in the, in the you know a designer might be like how about this let's make it let's make what this thing is what do we think oh i hate it i don't like the color i don't like the fact it's got square edges can we change that let's change it yeah. and we, we figured out that we needed to make those changes before we spent two million pounds on it or something so it's the same sort of principle like let's act out what happens with this policy but in a small group now immediately before we spend 12 months yeah. <laughs> like and a waste a load of time trying to make it happen um and um mine i think the the actors are just like members of the public um so i think she's done work on homelessness in manchester and i think she she's done stuff on like um youth engagement with um the police in new york um or you know or, or not non-engagement or you know relations um and like the the actors would be people from that constituency and they would they would sort of just play out almost like an action replay like let's okay let's what happens if we change this policy how would this work let's what if we change this policy and then the really interesting thing is that they actually bring policymakers along into that space 
and um and you can tell they're policymakers because they're wearing suits and ties <laughs> um and then they'll they'll sort of like bring you know so it's a really interesting process so that's that's another thing that's sort of on my list of things to play with interesting thing there's something about that that undergirds at least my own um way of thinking about design fiction is that you, that you what we're really trying to get to is that level of engage that kind of engagement with the whoever you want to call it the stakeholder the participant the the public in such a way that they are there whatever it is that they would impose to make them not believe or not feel into a possibility essentially goes away so that they are either like double taking they're like they, they're not being shown a presentation knowing that they're being shown a presentation they're not being shown a powerpoint of even a powerpoint of what the world could look like they're actually stumbling across the possibility that this world actually it exists i'm looking through somehow a portal that someone has created to show me this space and it's maybe what happens in those kinds of experiences like you know the experiential stuff that um where you actually enter into the world so that magical moment i mean even going into the omega mart in meow wolf like you know you're going to omega mart but after a few moments especially just the way the space is oriented and constructed and how thorough it is that you you can you very soon you're like okay i'm, I'm actually in this weird market of stuff from some adjacent world and then the you know the beautiful thing that happened to me just because i didn't do a whole lot of research beforehand and maybe it's not even revealed so i saw people like walking into the freezer of the butcher's counter i'm like what the heck is that about we got to go over there and you have those moments where you're kind of going through the you know the broom closet or you you open the door and you kind of transit into this other space and i think something happens yeah i like to think something happens you know almost like at a neurophysiological level where you begin to suspend your sense of disbelief and doubt and kind of all everything from the the other the, the world that you know and maybe the resentments and the kind of confusion of that world is left behind. So you're you're in there. And so I think, you know, theater, as you're describing it, is is one of those things, especially if people can participate, like, okay, I'll play the cop. And you start, you know, kind of immersing in embodying or whatever you want to call it, like body storming, LARPing, um, and you become a part of that world. Do you know um Superflux? Yeah, of course. Know them well. Yeah, good friend. Um so one of they one of my favorite pieces of speculative design or design fiction they did was probably in about 2016-17 working with the I think it was the UAE Ministry of Energy mm -hmm. yeah. and they created the um, particulate matter like um, from uh, one of their scenarios from the future it wasn't just a smell but it was like the particulates so like and then they, they I think they there's like pictures on their website of them working with um the policymakers and saying like can you would you like to smell this now and like if some if someone said to you would you like to smell like the particulates from like a world where we've gone like even more crazy on hydrocarbons than we are now like would you like that you're like no <laughs> like get away from me i do not want to inhale that yeah. and it's like right okay that's a reaction <laughs> yeah yeah amazing I mean, the, the point about the fridge is really interesting. So, so yeah, in Santa Fe, the, 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 you go through the fridge and the, like, when you go through the fridge, you enter this like other world. Uh, and uh, well, it's the same actually in Las Vegas, isn't it? But in Santa Fe, it's like a suburban fridge. And I heard Vince Cadley Beck 
uh, who's one of the founders of Meow Wolf, uh, talking at the Royal Academy. And he had something interesting to say. If you can go through this fridge and the world can change from like a suburban household to the multiverse, like he really built and emphasized this sense of change. So if that world can change, then like, how about you can change the world as well? And how about you can change yourself as well? So he he really, I think like this this idea of like change was really central to what he was interested in and reflecting it from like an entertainment space to an individual and to an individual's agency in the world that we that we do live in. And that again brings you into the world of politics and policy, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I get a strong sense that um, that there is I mean, you've been you've been on it for a while now, but that 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 we're on a kind of cusp where things are going to more and more of this is being embraced, and this is just like kind of weak signals that I that I sense, and I think part of it has to do with it being um, I don't know, like taught taught more. It feels like I, I feel like there 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 are people who have gone through you know various kind of design programs who then kind of enter into industry or maybe even um, you know, maybe even government or NGOs, it, it feels like more of it's come. I, I feel like I'm, more people are sort of saying like, hey, I'm, I'm over here doing this kind of stuff. Is, do you have any thoughts about how we might go about doing you know, problem X um, using speculative design or design fiction, which I found really surprising. Like I always thought it was, it always felt like quite fringe for quite some time. Um, but it feels like there's more of it. Even the fact that someone sends me a manuscript and they're like, "Hey, this is a book about um, speculative speculative fiction and um, urban design." Like what? Yeah, um, it certainly feels like that, and it feels exciting, and it feels really powerful. And going back to the things that we were talking about earlier about why politicians are interested in this, it it, it kind of you know does a number of things, including bringing the citizen closer to decision making, opening things out. Um, and also just about it, you know, th there is a need to to be innovative, like these challenges we're facing today are so difficult. Um, you have to use all of your tools, all of your methods, all of your talents to try and solve these problems. Um, the, the the thing that I'm interested in is like, you know, the, where, where we think about art and policy, there is actually a real history to this, <laughs> um, which kind of goes back to the Greeks. So, so that's that's something that I find interesting is this is not necessarily, you know, and we, we talk about innovation and potentially using art in policy as being like an innovative approach. But actually, um, you know, the, the, this this has maybe gone gone on for a while. And, and do you know the work of William Morris? Uh, I think so. Which which William Morris? What am I talking about? I don't know any William Morris. So he was a um, he was a really interesting um, uh, sort of multi-talented person in the i don't know 1870s 1880s I, i'm actually in walthamstow at the moment in northeast london and he's there's a william morris gallery here um and um he um he uh wrote um this book called uh, news from nowhere um and it's it's sort of that it was written in 1880 and it was a um I don't know, maybe it was a piece of design fiction. <laughs> uh, it, it talked about, um, so someone like, um, is like, I don't know, stressed through the day or something like that. 
and they kind of go home and they're sort of like, oh, sick of the world. And they wake up the next morning and everything's like a little bit different. Um, and they basically enter this future world. And um, there's some there's some interesting stuff in it. Like some stuff is like, oh, women are still subservient to men in this future world. Like, great. Um, but but on the other hand, like money is no longer used. There's no like money is no longer a useful thing. It's like just a sort of pe- people just do stuff on a on a sort of trust basis and and the thing that i find is really interesting in the london context is and he was writing this in the 1880s i think or around about them is um there's these like beautiful salmon in the thames these amazing fishes in the thames and like now we have great there are lots of fish in the thames um i think it could be better and there's um I, I think there's there's sort of various um, infrastructure pro- projects to to continue to improve the water quality of the Thames River, um, but back in the 1880s it was awful, right? I mean it was like it was just dead and toxic, and yet he's he, he's writing this book about how how this um, you know one you know, how about a world where there's Thames in the river. And and that's kind of happened. And I think that's really interesting um, that, that sort of like 70, 60 years later, 80 years later, that those kind of things have happened. And it's and it's like, did, is that what, you know, did he kind of cause that? Was that was he part of that? Did you just like having that idea and putting it out there? And did that sort of bring it into reality? I guess you never you never really know. Um, but it's interesting, I think, looking at some of these historical examples as well. I spent three weeks in the US. And I was looking at people for people who are exploring this intersection of art and science and policy. And I think it was interesting. I didn't speak to too many people working in the policy world because I think stateside people are looking at it in a different way. And maybe the, the sort of current climate at the moment, there's a sort of sense that policy and politics is not a place to be. I'm not a designer, but I work with a lot of designers and um, I've learned an awful lot from doing that. And it seems to me, and, and you know, you'll know more about this and others will know more about this than I do, but that pe- pe- designers are increasingly interested in, you know, this side of the pond we call, people are talking a lot about like systems change. I don't know if that discourse is the same where you are. And I think it is people who have who have kind of come from a product design background or a graphic design background or even a user-centered design background and have kind of sort of done great work, but sort of got come up against something. And then and then it's, you know, you talked about this intractable problem and sort of, you know, there's only so much their talents and powers can can go in that space. And so then they've kind of got interested, I think, in so we get a lot of designers who want to work in Policy Lab, which is the team that I'm co-head of, um, because I think they see as sort of understanding that system and influencing that system as being powerful. And um, I think this is where the policy cycle comes in helpful. And I don't know if I think this will sort of make sense uh, on your side of uh, the Atlantic. And, And I think it makes sense in most contexts, though I've sort of come at it from a British perspective. And it's this idea that um, there's these sort of stages by which a policy, and you probably say this just about any decision, to be honest, goes through. And it starts off quite broad um, and sort of like quite vague. Um, And this is the agenda setting um, stage. 
And then it kind of goes through a series of stages which go a bit more kind of narrow and kind of get more and more narrow until you get to that delivery point where you're kind of like actually making something happen. So, you know, just as an example, you might say there's loads of people, um, uh, there's loads of deaths on the road from car accidents, from drunk driving, whatever, and we need to stop that. So that's that sort of big picture piece. Um, and then you kind of might get into more specific things like actually, okay, we need more breathalyzers, we need more police on the streets, we need more cameras, um, we need, an edge, and that's getting more precise into that, um, into those stages, which are about the delivery of it. And then you might get to this, the reason it's a cycle is you might get to this point where you're like, well, did that work? And let's go back to it. And I think one of the things that I find really interesting is working with designers about not just being at that implementation stage, um, and actually kind of coming upstream, as you, as you might say, to actually be like, well, what's the challenge that we're trying to solve here? Now, the drunk driving example is not a particularly good one because sort of everyone would probably agree that that's just a good thing to do. But there's obviously other areas which are a lot more contentious. And it seems to me, and sort of defer to your judgment on this, but it seems to me that's where design fiction and actually art more generally can play a really powerful role. So, so when I did that analysis of pieces of art and where they fit into the policy cycle I think a lot of them tend to cluster at that that sort of like what's the problem we're trying to solve here and actually trying to get that as an agenda on people's radar um and and sort of say that, that this is you know almost that awareness raising piece now that's not to say that art and design and design fiction can't operate at all places in that policy cycle um but I think it's it's kind of quite powerful to to go up to that place where you know because that ultimately that that's where you have the biggest influence. It's also the the vaguest areas, the the hardest bit to evidence. Um, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be in that space. Let's spend some time with people, understand that. But actually, I think if you can bring users' perspectives right up front before you've really set the direction of that policy, I think that's a really powerful thing to do. So I think there's a lot of benefits. You're almost sort of shortcutting it instead of waiting you know like four stages and potentially like 15 months down the line before we start asking people how does this play how does this play Did, would this work would this work and sort of testing and prototyping it actually why don't we test and prototype it before we've <laughs> spent 15 months on it it just seems an obvious thing to do yeah, yeah good fun okay well uh, um thanks for sending over the um the diagram i'm gonna have a look at that and um enjoy your trip to the uk next week take care have a great day. Okay, that was SRG Bennett, who is co-director of Policy Lab. I can recommend that you check out his website and, of course, dig into all the insights he and his lab mates have unearthed. This has been episode 44 of the Near Future Laboratory podcast. Please support us over on patreon.com slash nearfuturelaboratory. It's just $8 a month, and that's like what? I don't even think you can get a Pret-a-Manger sandwich for that. Maybe you get the egg salad on wheat. That $8 goes a long way towards helping us keep on keeping on. With this podcast, the newsletter, Discord server, all the things. Say, so, well, this was fun. I appreciate you listening. Thank you for that. Seriously, thank you. I'm Julian, and I'm out. Bye.